I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. You know I've been talking about earned media value for quite some time on this podcast. My friends at Eisenberg have just raised the bar on earned media benchmarks with their social index. Social Index now gives you globally earned media values across a growing list of six geographies for all your KPIs across the top seven social platforms, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Snapchat, TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube. You can now visualize these values for deeper analysis, and they have a look-back window over two years of historical comparisons. Social Index is updated daily. Don't get stuck with old data. Over 1,000 companies have used the Social Index to understand the ROI of their social campaigns. And if you work with a social agency, you should demand they incorporate earned media values into your reports. Get your earned media value for social content. Visit earnedmediavalues.com slash Allen. Again, that's earnedmediavalues.com slash A-L-A-N. For all of us, it's about predicting where the consumer is going and getting half of it right. One of the things we want to do is create ads that don't suck. Embracing change creates great possibility. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Today on the show, I've got Rodney Williams. He's the president and CEO of Belvedere Vodka. Rodney's leading the global launch and implementation of a new platform that captures the essence of Belvedere's story, the rye, water, and fire in Made With Nature campaign and positioning of the brand. Prior to his role at Belvedere, he was the CMO for Moet Hennessy's USA's portfolio of iconic luxury champagne, wines, spirit brands. And before that was Senior Vice President for Hennessy, where he led the brand out of decline into a record growth with a groundbreaking new strategic campaign. Prior to that, he was the Senior Vice President for Classic Brands at Jackson Family Wines. And we talk about his story even before that, working on the launch of OnStar for General Motors and his early marketing experience at Procter & Gamble and Johnson & Johnson. This conversation, you're going to find that Rodney can uncover the insight, the truth of a brand and make it sing for great results in market like no other person I think we've probably had on this show. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Rodney Williams. Well, Rodney, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be with you. Well, 
I feel like we got to start with this news that I have about you, that you were in the nonprofit space before business school. What was uh, that about? <laughs> well, you know, I was one of those people who graduated from, from college and thought, yes, I'm going to make my contribution to, uh, to change the world and realize the world was a lot more complicated than uh, political science textbooks. But I, I ran a direct mail business in the 19, late 1980s that was owned by the largest social service agency in Chicago and uh, with the intent of uh, turning a profit, but hiring disadvantaged employees, uh, women who had been teen moms, guys who had been former gang members. And it was was a powerful experience for me because I saw how how much human potential there is and how little of it is, is, how much of it is being wasted in our, our educational system. But it also taught me a fascination with, with, with business and problem solving. So I, I went to business school instead of public policy um, graduate work, as I had expected. And, uh, and since then, I've just really been sort of um, attuned to how business also impacts community and, uh, and have tried to uh, remain engaged in terms of some of the nonprofit work I've done at boards. Um, as well as uh, working with brands that really do have a sort of give back. Got it. Did you grow up in Illinois or Chicago? I did. Grew up in Evanston, Illinois. Yep. Nice. Over Northwestern. (laughs) Well, that that leads us into the next question. Where did you go to business school and why? (laughs) I went to Kellogg and uh, at Northwestern. I was... um, intrigued by the fact that marketing is such a strong program, but also that they have a sort of group study uh, uh, process where a lot of the classwork is done in groups of of three to five people. And and what was fascinating about that, Alan, is that pretty quickly on, students kind of get figure out that you have the best chance of getting a strong grade by being in a group with people who don't think like you. So you're covering multiple bases or different backgrounds. So, you know, uh, if only the real world uh, replicated that everywhere, but I've certainly found that sort of approach where people problem solve from different angles and best idea wins to be uh, quite useful. Yeah, no, that's a great lesson to learn. I have to ask, because he's actually been on the show. uh, Did you take classes from the infamous Phil Kotler? I did not. I met Phil a couple of times and uh, I heard him uh, give a couple of lectures. And of course, you know, his book was the Bible. But um, Phil Phil had a reputation of being a boring professor. Brilliant, (laughs) but boring. (laughs) So I never took his class. That's the cost of brilliance, I guess. Yeah, it, maybe maybe you know he he wrote the book for a reason because exactly that's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> funny. Um, well, you you then so after business school you then went on this traditional marketing route. Um, I think working at J and J and Procter and Gamble. Tell me a little bit about that and like what led you to to those tracks coming from one coming from nonprofit. I mean, I, you were obviously in the direct mail business in the nonprofit yeah. world. Yeah. But what, why marketing? Why those big guy, big guys? Well, yeah. So, you know, coming from that, the business that I was running, I was curious, you know, how, how does one do sophisticated marketing research? You know, for me, it was 
call my biggest three customers and if they're going to you know, pay for an incremental service, we offer it. If not, we don't. So, um, so that was the intriguing part that got me to P and G and later to, to, to Johnson Johnson. And then I signed, I sort of found the thing that sort of, uh, drives me is that the element of brand building where you're, you're really fundamentally problem solving. You've got a great mm-hmm. product, but it may not be connecting with consumers. It may, uh, not be uh, positioned correctly. So it, it, it's sort of a game or a puzzle or mystery to figure out how do you get the, the, the brand in the right position so that people can fully appreciate it and embrace the offering. Hmm. Got it. Well, you know, those companies are ginormous. They obviously, you know, teach the fundamentals, you know, how to how to structure your problem, I guess, if you will, from a marketing standpoint. What did you take away from either J&J or P&G uh, into your, you know, your, your next chapter, so to speak? Yeah, well, I think of, you know, a place like Johnson Johnson in particular as being sort of intrapreneurial in mm-hmm. that it, it has many different divisions that usually, you know, keep them, you know, smaller than $2 billion so that they they stay relatively lead of foot and, and aggressive in terms of uh, of growth. And uh, so I learned a lot from that process and, and was later brought in to, to join the team to uh, to relaunch uh, the OnStar service for General Motors. It had, it had an initial launch that, that just didn't take off. And, and what we found was, you know, they were they weren't they were focused on the fact that GM had eight satellites over the country at all times, and how great the technology was, and not the consumer benefit of safety and security, which is the real reason why why people signed up. So when we changed the positioning around it, the unaided awareness went from thirteen percent to eighty one percent. I mean, just shut up. So I think those sorts of lessons in terms of how consumer product brands position and structure uh, themselves around uh, an offering I've been able to apply in in other other settings that are, are, are less structured that way. Got it. And when did you, you know, we, we're going to talk quite a bit about uh, obviously OnStar, but then the, the, we'll talk a lot about your recent you know, career chapter of in the liquor, alcohol space and beverage space, so to speak, I guess, and brought more broadly speaking. And you've become kind of this like turnaround guy or like enhanced growth guy. When did that happen? When, when did you become it that person? Just sort of developed. I mean, it wasn't uh, that I set out um, to do that. I mean, with Proctor, Proctor, you know, Pampers and Huggies have been in a horse race in the diapers business. And it's a huge, huge business. Uh, and so Pampers alone, way back then, a billion dollars. And they reinvented, Pampers reinvented the nomenclature of the category instead of, you know, size one, two, three. It was more developmental, newborn, crawler, walker, toddler. And to, to get the consumer to really do that took really transforming the way that people thought about the category. And at Johnson & Johnson, the charge was that 25% of your business's uh, sales needed to be from new products launched within the last three years. So 
I think those experiences just sort of inculcated, you know, a, a notion in me that you should really look to ways to uh, to innovate and reinvigorate uh, the brand rather than rather than just uh, maintaining status quo. And 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 from that, I think I also took a liking to businesses that others uh, were less excited about because they seemed more challenging, uh, but they just needed more, you know, nurturing and, and, and care. I remember when I was on the Band-Aid uh, brand, you know, American classic, we all grew up with Band-Aid, and uh, it, was, it was just stagnant. And um, we did a couple of things. We worked really closely with R&D to, to launch the first moist antibiotic bandage, and it was no small feat because we really literally wrote the, the rigs with the FDA about, about the sterilization of the, of the hose strip and everything. But I think one of the more compelling things we did was we brought back this jingle. If you grew up in the U.S., you know, you know, I am stuck on Band-Aid bricks. Band-Aid stuck on me. <laughs> well, that jingle was written by Barry Manilow. And, and he uh, he uh, signed over the rights to it. So Johnson Jonathan had owned it and hadn't used it for 10 years at least from when I came over to the brand. So we resurrected it and, you know, ended up in the New York Times and a huge PR piece just, just around the jingle itself. But it was such a powerful mnemonic for, for moms who are the, the core purchasers because they all grew up with it and they were exposed to it. So... You know, there was, it was just a sort of a classic textbook case of both incorporating new technology, but really tapping into what was already there and maybe mm-hmm. under, uh, underappreciated. And the, the, the business um, took off with the highest share growth uh, that year, that, that the last five years, previous years combined. That's amazing. I mean, I remember... Actually, my mom worked in healthcare, and I remember her being so excited about those Band-Aid products with the, uh, the, with the uh, antibacterial treatment inside of them because uh, it saved her time, you know, patching me up <laughs> before I went out to go play again. Yeah. Uh, and, and the jingle, I mean, those, those things are so powerful. Yeah. And, well, yeah. and I think what was also true about change and true today, I'm sure, is that in being good stewards of brand, they really understood the essence of the brand. And in Band-Aid, it's really about a mother's kiss. Mm-hmm. You know, and kids really, young kids in particular, love putting them on because they feel like it, it's sort of a proxy to you know, parental love. Mm-hmm. And uh, once you understand that, you can really sort of enhance the imagery of communications. Got it. Well, so you make your way from, I'm guessing, the Midwest or East Coast to the West Coast. What drove yeah. you to the West Coast? Well, I was at OnStar and I got a call from a former colleague who said, you know, you're not going to have any stories to tell your kids about the dot-com revolution. <laughs> you know, you're missing this whole epoch and, you know, you got to get out of here. I'll give you seven days to join a start. And I quit my job and moved to California in like a week and a half. And long story short, it was a dot com that turned into a dot com. <laughs> so we, we started the business in January 2000. The market crashed in April, but we closed the Series A funding round of 21 million in October. A 
really, really enormously bright um, leadership team. They were all PhD, MBAs, uber smart. And um, unfortunately, the, the, the software that we were building was over-engineered. Mm. <laughs> so you need a PhD to, to manage the user interface. I, but have, being out in California, I ended up being hired by, uh, by Robert Mugabe. Mm. That's sort of how I got into the, uh, into the wine. Yeah, well, I, you did, you know, get into get into the spirits and wine business. You've racked up a number of stops among different brands, whether it's wine brands or cognac or now vodka um, at Belvedere. What is it about that industry that, that keeps you in it? Because this is like it feels like this is your second career. You know, like this is this is where you found your footing. I'm just curious. Yeah. So for me, you know, I've been really lucky working in a place like P&G, Johnson Johnson, um, and even OnStar, where the businesses are re- really benefit. You know, at, at OnStar, the big insight for us around safety and security came, uh, you know, was validated in a focus group where a woman said having OnStar is like having, having her husband in the passenger seat. Mm. And it was 20 more minutes into the group until we focus group, we learned that her husband had died five years previously, and she didn't feel safe driving at night, driving in unfamiliar territory, until she had OnStar, and she felt like she had backup. So it was empowering, you know, this whole safety security. So I loved working on businesses that were really, really helping people that way. And I, I came across a study about wine and, you know, resveratrol and the polyphenols in wine and the idea that, you know, consumed in moderation, that there's a big Swedish, you know, double-blind clinical study that found that it statistically reduced the incidence of dementia uh, in uh, cohorts of 65. And so I said, wow, there's health benefit in, in, in wine. So uh, so when I had the opportunity to uh, to interview Robert Mandavi, I, I was really intrigued by, by that part. I even had a friend in the industry who said, mm, you might not want to mention that part in the interview, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I couldn't help myself. I, I brought it up. I mean, that's what, that's what really got me um, intrigued by it. And what I find about the spirit side, and it took a little bit of hand-wringing to, you know, to make the leap from one spirit, is that um, they're highly emotional brands. Mm-hmm. Where people, you know, not unlike not unlike even some of the car brands, where people really feel like they are extensions of their their personalities and statements that they want to make, you know, in, in the world or in their community. So I I found it super interesting. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, what what's been some of the highlights? I mean, you've you've worked um, obviously with Mandavi, you know in the cognac space, any highlights you want to share, like things that you're you know, exceptionally proud of or, or insightful you found as you, as you went through? Yeah. I mean, I think Robert Mandavi was a legend and deservedly so, mm-hmm. um, you know, his, his understanding of savoir faire and his ability to just bring an element of sophistication to the ordinary was, was incredible. 
I, I can remember early in my tenure there, I, I, uh, I, I was hosting meetings. People have flown in from uh, from the East Coast, and I was you know, sort of sympathetic to that. So I brought a huge bag of, of bagels and, uh, and cream cheese and you know, had them in, into the conference room table. And someone walked in and said, who brought the bagels? And I said, well, it's just a small token I did, you know, sort of, <laughs> sort of patting myself on the back. And the, and the guy said, nice presentation. And the whole room started laughing because, you know, at Mandavi, you plate them on China. You know, you have the bagels arranged in an appealing way. <laughs> like it's, it's about the presentation and you can make, you know, the banal feel elevated and, and luxuriant. And, uh, and and I thought that was an incredible thing to, uh, you know, to bring to the U.S., bring to the world, those sorts of uh, those values. I later worked uh, at Kendall Jackson uh, for Just Jackson. And, you know, again, they're the second biggest privately held wine company in the U.S., and they do a marvelous job in terms of, of wine making. And Kendall Jackson was the number one Chardonnay over $10, may well be still today. And uh, just that we want we want to grow, and uh, so the challenge there was how do you how do you wrest growth from a recognized leader? And Ken, uh, Kendall Jackson goes through a special sort of uh, malolactic fermentation that gives it sort of a creamy mouth feel. And so we launched a different version of it that was the polar opposite. It was not aged in wood, but in steel. It's very austere. And it was the biggest uh, new product that they launched in the company's history. Did really well, <laughs> and, and then I got hired over to the current company for whom I work, Moet Hennessy, to join the team on the Hennessy brand. And Hennessy is uh, is very important business to the portfolio. And coming out of the recession in '08, had not been growing for years, and there was there was concern. And um, and when we took a look at the brand and really peel back, you know, it's, it's, it's DNA in terms of uh, how the, the, the older bees are blended each year to create, to create the product hmm. um, and the outsized commitment to, to, to quality they have. And what was important to the core target, we landed on this idea of, of pushing the limits of one's potential. And, uh, you know, at the time it was, let's see, it was 2011, there were more women than men or boys and girls, girls and boys graduating from high school for the first time in American history. And as you go further up in terms of the, the educational ladder, the uh, gender gap grows. And so, you know, what had been this old sort of assumption that, you know, you graduate from high school and women, you know, look for guys and guys look for women to get married and have families was sort of being thrown on its side. And this idea of really understanding your potential and pursuing it was quite resonant. And, uh, and so we framed it on what's your wild rabbit, your wild rabbit being your, your inner dream that you hold deep down inside, maybe never even exposed to others. And it's really taken off the you know, business, you know, these years later, it's more than doubled in terms of size and profit and around this whole idea of never stopping or subtle. So, so that was very gratifying. And three and a half years ago, I came over to, to Belvedere, uh, the Black business, as the global head of it. And, and, and 
and here, uh, you know, the business is not failing. It's just, it's underappreciated in terms of its story itself. Because vodka is one of these categories where, you know, we all have stories of drinking it uh, maybe as the first drink in college or high school. And trust me, I've met people who <laughs> play well before that. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> they'll, they'll, they'll stay nameless yeah <laughs> they'll stay nameless they'll stay nameless but you know people don't want to go back to those memories they say yes you know i had vodka <laughs> with you know orange juice or cranberry and uh I, this is how i felt the next day and yes I, i've outgrown the, those experiences and that's what you know led them into scotch or tequila or mezcal or, or, or whiskey and the idea of Belvedere was always to offer a craft, high, high, high caliber experience with, with vodka itself. So uh, Belvedere is made with rye, which is difficult to grow and very difficult to distill, but it imparts flavor. Think rye bread sandwich versus a white bread sandwich. It's the rye that gives, gives the, uh, the, the flavor. So when we looked at the brand itself and, and how it had been originally launched, and the story behind it is quite beautiful too, the, the, the distillery is the oldest continuously operating vodka distillery in the world. It's 110 years old. And in 1989, when the Berlin Wall fell, an American entrepreneur went to the Eastern, former Eastern Bloc countries looking for a great high-end vodka that he could launch because the because the marketplace really didn't have a brand that was dedicated to uh to super premium vodkas. And uh and that's how he found this 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 distiller in Gerard of uh of Poland uh and it became uh Belvedere. He, he incidentally he he's the son of wait was well, passed away in 06, but he's the son of uh the original Dear Abbey and and also <laughs> the founder of Talenti, the gelato. If you like, if you like. Oh, yeah, 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 mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. When you did the same thing there. But uh, <laughs> so, yeah, so so the story was really great. And, you know, because Belvedere is sold both in craft, you know, bars, but also, you know, in nightclubs, the brand had long had this sort of duality between style and substance, where style is very high energy and party, 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 and substance, of course, is craft. And when we, when we went back through the history and back to its origins, we found that the part that had really been uh, not well communicated was the idea that it's always been all natural. So Poland appellates or regulates vodka production the way France, Italy, or the U.S. regulates wine, such that you cannot add sugar or emulsifiers or other additives in Polish vodka. And all of whatever you're making it with, rye or corn or wheat or potatoes, has the, excuse me, all come from Poland itself. So, so that, that was a really important um, feature, we thought. And before the pandemic, we'd done a body of research in, in five countries on three continents. And, you know, usually, well, you know, you, you don't get a common viewpoint when you're talking to consumers in Asia, North America, and Europe. But we did around the importance of nature, around the importance of the environment. For the 25 to 34-year-old cohort, this is 
this is different than the way Gen Xers and Boomers and earlier generations thought of this and that. For them, it was a nice to have, but for these guys, it's a deal breaker and a, and a real purchase driver behind brands themselves. So we were happy to learn that before the pandemic. And we think that because of the pandemic, you know, because we're all humbled by the power of nature, but very keenly interested in what we're consuming um, and, and how that it's just become that much more uh, relevant. So that's the genesis behind the whole made with the nature um, campaign. I love it. I mean, the thing I'm reflecting on as you tell these stories at each of your stops in, in Belvedere is no, no different is your uncanny ability to like refine and hone in on that, like critical brand insight. How, what makes a good insight in your mind? Like, well, you, well, yeah, you find them. You, it seems like you find them in different places, you know, like Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today from the emotional lever, if you will, like what people are trying to attach this occasion to, to, you know, the, the, the element or the product itself and the, the qualities that are best to bring forward. Mm-hmm. Well, I, for me, I am just, as I say personally, a nerd. And so <laughs> I'm, I'm fascinated by consumer research. There used to be this magazine called American Demographics. And it got bought and then it sort of went by the wayside. But it was an amalgam of consumer research being done all around the country. And literally, when the issue would arrive in the mail, <laughs> I would have to hide it from myself because I would sit and read it, the whole thing cover to cover, like for a couple of hours. And I was just so fascinated by it. But I, I, I so I feel like I'm a student of, of social culture, but when you peel back the the history or the story of a, of a given brand. The product's great. There pretty much is a, a reason why. There's a mm-hmm. reason why this product is consistently good. And, you know, there's a reason why these guys have been distilling for 110 years and still going. And, and when you understand that and you can marry it with a component of social culture that's relevant, then I think you really have a, you know, a compelling story to tell and a frame that people appreciate and, and, and recognize. Got it. Well, I mean, it's, you, you're definitely a master at that art <laughs> uh, and nerd or not, you, uh, you've, you've had some amazing results over these stops. 
you know, and you, you mentioned the emotional positioning is one of the things that attracted you to the category that you're in now. What, what is it about emotion in liquor and spirits that, that drives that category? Have you, have you given that much thought? Well, you know, I mean, it certainly depends on the, uh, on the individual, but it's very much a sort of, you know, your one's uh, alcohol libation of choice or uh, is very much a reflection of sort of the type of lifestyle an individual want, is either living or wants to project, maybe mm-hmm. both. And, um, you know, and, and usually it's a consideration set as much as one brand, but uh, for the older generations, there were probably five or six go-to brands now for younger consumers who are, who are much more open to experimentations can be a dozen. But um, so I found I find what it is that drives that so interesting, you know, and um, um, and the uh, number one and number two, I find that because the brands themselves have this sort of emotional component, they also uh, allow you to really be community building in your communications in a way you, you know, you might not be able to do with other types of, uh, of consumable uh, of products. Like for instance, on, on Hennessy, when we launched Never Stop, Never Settle campaign, the uh, star of the initial uh, community advertising round was the boxer Manny Pacquiao. And what drove mm-hmm. us to him was he won all these titles, but he was also uh, a senator in the Philippines. So you talk about a guy who's, who's reached the pinnacle and he's still pushing to get a higher level of, uh, of accomplishment and probably end up president someday. And he was the first Asian to head a major spirits brand uh, campaign in the U.S. And I think, you know, doing those sorts of things really helps cross the lines of of. of of, of what is culture and, you know, what is representation uh, look like. Hennessy has a uh, core, long history with the African-American uh, consumer. And our, the brand's narrator or, or voice from the very beginning of the campaign has been uh, the artist Nas. And uh, what I find so fascinating about Nas himself is that, you know, beyond being one of the, the greatest uh, hip-hop artists of all time, he's also uh, a, a huge venture capitalist and quite quite successful um, working with some of the big uh, VCs in, in Silicon Valley. And they seek out deals from him, not, not necessarily the other way around. <laughs> so so, uh, so but what it did was it really allowed us to amplify and talk about some of the key uh, uh, inspirational figures that really uh, motivated people. I remember in a focus group, a guy said, you know, when you're talking about one's wild rabbit, and he said, I don't have a wild rabbit. And we all kind of like froze in the back room thinking, maybe this isn't a good idea. Yeah, that's the last thing you want to hear. (laughs) That's the last thing you want to hear. But he said, said, but I'm really glad Hennessy is asking me about it and I need to get one. Mm. And so, you know, the idea that you could be inspiring beyond just, 
you know, the next sip of, of cognac, I think is quite, quite powerful, quite, quite gratifying. Uh, Belvedere has been a partner with Bono's Red Campaign for, uh, for nine years now in, in terms of uh, eliminating HIV in, in Africa. And, uh, and, and most importantly, we've been the sponsor of, uh, of a raw, call it raw spirit summit in Poland, where we bring farmers together with academicians at the University of Wush each year to really talk about the sustainable agricultural technologies and techniques mm. and the research behind it. And we've been doing it for seven years. We publish a journal um, each year in accordance with so there are lots of ways that these brands in particular, these spirits brands, can really amplify, you know, the messaging or the positioning they're about in ways that are really community building, in ways that really, really do give back. I think it's an important one. Yeah. Well, and it, you know, as you talk about this, and, you know, Hennessy is a great example, but even Belvedere and the kind of insight you found across all those different countries, I mean, there's something about the way in which you've gone about your insight development that is just naturally finding these like human truths, right? That yeah. like cut across demographics, cut across country borders. Yeah. It's well, quite, yeah. quite impressive. Well, you know, the funny thing about demographics is that like uh, if you take, you know, hip hop and a core African-American audience, the, the presumption is that the audience would be most responsive to just receiving messages from a black artists or black, you know, representation. And in fact, uh, hip hop is very eclectic in terms of uh, what its influences, where its influences come from. And, you know, as long as everybody's included, you know, very much welcomes, you know, these, these other sorts of influences. And I think, you know, because the younger generation are just really digital natives. I mean, you can be from a farm in Kansas and, you know, up to the minute and what's happening in, in, in London and Paris or Italy or where, wherever, uh, just, just through social, that there is like a sort of uh, dismantling of old boundaries uh, and old cultural, you know, um, isolation. And so I'm really hopeful for this this younger generation and the world that they will uh, they will create because I I, I think that the level of of idea sharing on the positive side is super powerful. That's awesome. Well, I want to switch gears. Uh, we'd love to get to know uh, the person behind the ideas, behind the success, and and uh, behind the brand, so to speak. And one of my most favorite questions to ask is, has there been an experience of your past that defines or makes up who you are today? Well, for me, uh, I I tell you, the most gratifying um, experience I ever had was was working in that um, direct mail business uh, many years ago because I felt like we were really impacting lives. So in order to do the training module, we got funding from the MacArthur Foundation because, um, and I hadn't realized this until I took that job. I worked in economic development before that. But 
just the ideas, the values that are rewarded in traditional work settings are really middle-class values that are learned. There's nothing intuitive about punctuality or how you do and don't dress at work or, you know, when you, you know, as a young guy, you can rap to the ladies and you can't. And, (laughs) you know, that, and, and we literally had to address that. And what was fascinating to me was that there's so much talent that's available in this country. If, if, People are just given a chance. If there's an investment in really, really developing that talent, because the response from the people who who, who were hired was just just tremendous. And uh, uh, but yet, you know, there's so many people who, who don't have uh, those those sorts of opportunities. So, but it really tried. It really informed me. I think in terms of a manager. I've also had the benefit of some great managers along the way from whom, you know, I learned a great deal. But I think that empathy, like really, Mm -hmm. really working towards understanding where the other person is, is, is coming from is just the most useful sort of uh, quality in terms of uh, team building and in, in working closely with others. And for any success that I've had, it's really about the team. It's not me. <laughs> I, I'm, uh, there's nothing, you know, genius about me. It's, it's just that I have really, really good teams and um, and the ability to build quality teams, yeah, I think that's a super important. And that experience really set me on a trajectory. Yeah. Well, I, you can hear in your voice even the obviously the empathy for your consumer and the the people you're trying to serve with the brands that you're working on now, but it's an easy translation to, to the teams that you're, you're leading now in your various roles. So I applaud your efforts. One, one other question for you, what, you know, if you were starting this all over again, what, what advice would you give your younger self looking back? Well, um, probably to be more risk taking, to be more bold, you know, I, I I went into that startup with a with a lot of trepidation, and had I not had a friend, you know, who was who was leading, I probably still would have done it. And uh, in retrospect, even though it was not successful, I learned an awful lot. I learned maybe even about some of my limits, and uh, um, and you know, I need to work in a place where the product is really really quite strong. And um, and I also, uh, uh, you know, in retrospect, I can see where I could have been more risk taking myself in terms of just uh, putting the fear aside and believing in what you believe in and championing it more, more assertively, more aggressively. Got it. Well, I got a few more questions for you. This next one is the silliest question I ask, unfortunately. Uh-huh. But but I kind of like where where it goes. It builds my shopping, my personal shopping list from time to time. Has there been an impactful purchase of $100 or less in the last, say, 6 to 12 months that you've watched uh, here? Impactful purchase. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm going to disappoint you here. In that <laughs> <laughs> my, my, my purchase was, uh, was a train ticket. Uh, for an, uh, an old-fashioned train in, uh, in, in 
Pennsylvania when we went to our, our two and a half year old who's fascinated with everything train. And they had like a trick or treat ride or something. And so we, we bought the tickets, not really thinking about the fact that it's dark at 530 <laughs> and you can't really see out of it at all. Right. And, uh, and, and, you know, with COVID, everybody's distanced even on the train. So um, even though they had the kids dress up, it was, you know, was, that wasn't the experience it normally is. So my wife and I were just thinking, well, you know, we tried. He talked about it every day for like the next week. <laughs> so it was by far and away the best investment. So I would have to say that that was the best spent money under it. I love it. I love it. Uh, yeah. And I imagine at that age, I don't know if, if, um, Thomas, the train or Tom is, is Thomas, the train. Is yeah, yeah, Thomas. Yeah. yeah. That's a big yeah. hit. I remember doing a train ride with my daughter, probably about that age, maybe a little older, but, um, and it was a big hit too. It's <laughs> funny. It's funny. Well, um, I, two last questions for you. Uh, you know, most folks like yourself are kind of steward, students of what's going on around them. You've even referred to, <laughs> referred to yourself as a, a nerd <laughs> in this respect, maybe. Are there any brands or companies or causes that you follow or you think other people should be taking notice of? Well, I think that uh, the push for social justice um, mm. has really opened up brands in a big way and mm-hmm. uh, including you know even a company from my work in that the the need for brands to take stands and 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 stand up for values that they believe in um, has never been more more important so we, we live in a very interesting time because you know you the brands also have to be authentic and, and it has to mm-hmm. be more than just you know political posture, but uh, but true to, to how they operate. And at Belvedere, with the, the, the tragedy of George Floyd and such, we, we sought out and supported an organization called Race Forward, which really addresses how do you eliminate systemic, institutionalized uh, racism. And I don't know if we would have found our way to do that so assertively before the you know the pandemic and everyone sitting at home and seeing this this, this thing happen for their eyes and so I, I I think it's an important moment when I look at what some brands are doing I just marvel at the the new advertising from uh, from Burberry if you've seen it um, mm-hmm. where they take singing in the rain which is, you know, the Gene Kelly, uh, Debbie Reynolds classic. And they have contemporary dancers in a kind of surreal setting with uh, massive snowballs flying from the sky in, in, in not that cold uh, London. And then they, they, so they, they've made it hugely stylized and mm-hmm. almost uh, fantastic you know, uh, like, a, like a fantasy and, and sort of done this admixture of stereotypical classic with almost hip-hop um, overtures and, and, and <laughs> movement. And um, I think it's brilliant. I think it's a, 
it's a great analog for the classic aspects of Burberry really meeting um, contemporary society. Uh, and super well done. Super well done. I'll have to check that out. I haven't seen it yet, but it sound it does sound pretty interesting and a great way to, to your point, contemporize. <laughs> I don't know if that's a word I just made up, but uh, contemporize the Burberry in the modern day. Right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Interesting, interesting. Well, I have to ask this question. I'm going to lie. I have one more question for you because beyond the one I want to la- ask last, you know, you you're African American, grew up in the U.S. CEO of a very successful, you know, spirits business. Do you reflect on that at all? Like, I'm just curious if, if that hits you, like I just described it, or you think about it entirely differently, potentially too. No, I mean, I I definitely do, and you know, I'm uh, involved in uh, several organizations, you know, to help develop the uh, the pipeline of of, mm-hmm. of more um, people of color. Super proud of the fact that the um, that the distillery itself, you know, we're on the production line. We're 50-50 male, female managers, 50-50 at the mm-hmm. executive level, 40%. So, um, so yeah, I think it's uh, I think it's important, and uh, and I, you know, I can, <laughs> I can remember uh, when I was first hired in the wine business, and you, you know, typically each fall you meet with growers and you give them a report on yield and, and you know forecast for for the business and the first questions i inevitably got were where where are your parents from and you know where did you grow up because they're just trying to figure out who the hell am i and how <laughs> <I'm here." laughs> I, I think even one 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 farmer asked me if i was a minority that he might not have really interacted very many up close. Uh, so, uh, so you know, the world has progressed from there, and I think that's a really good thing. And so, you know, it's humble. I'm humbled that if I've, you know, been able to help in any way. But, um, but I think that there's just, you know, a slow trudge of uh, of, of progress that we're seeing in the, in the business world, where people can hail from any kind of background, any kind of experience and, um, and, and, and have an impact. I do think that, you know, it's, it's ways to go for a, for a level um, playing field, mm-hmm. but um, it just, you know, if, if, when I was hired at, 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 in the Hennessy, it was funny. My boss at the time said, you are a caretaker for the brand. And mm-hmm. I thought, what an interesting you know, frame because it does feel like almost you're taking the baton and you're going to mm-hmm. run with it and you're going to hand it off, you know, to the to the next person. And I feel that you know we're sort of on U.S. in particular, but you know, globally, a journey of of getting towards closer towards you know the ideals that we've we've all been. Um, inculcated with this, this school kids about you know what the country really stands for, and we're, we're not there yet, but we're you know we're making progress. Yeah, no, that's that's a great great reflection. Thanks for that. I appreciate it. Um, 
Well, my last question for you uh, has been a fascinating conversation is, you know, what do you feel like is either the largest opportunity or maybe the biggest threat to marketers today? Well, I think, I think the biggest threat is the lack of arbitration of the truth. Hmm. You know, like we, we talked earlier about the power of social media to really connect and it's, it's formidable in terms of what it's done, but the the underside has to be in its ability to distort. And and the and the tough thing about people really being able to sort through, you know, what's real and what's not. And it can be something as innocuous as you know what I found vexing when I first came over to Belvedere is that um, all vodka is gluten-free. <laughs> some, some brands that say gluten-free on the label, and it's, it's like saying cholesterol-free on a bottle of water. So <laughs> it, it, it's not even all vodka. Anything that's distilled, any distilled liquor, uh, gluten is a big molecule, and it's captured in, in the distillation process. And, you know, mm-hmm. both is distilled four times. So it really doesn't matter that it's made with rye or other brands are made with wheat. If they're distilled, mm. they're gluten-free. Mm. Um, but people don't know that. I've had bartenders tell me, I, I you know, pour such and such brand because they, they say gluten-free on the label. And, it, you know, it's frustrating because, um, I, I, you know, I wouldn't have known this had I, had I not worked in the business itself. But there are people who do know it in the industry and, you know, they were kind of manipulated. Now, the mm-hmm. FDA did move earlier this year to allow brands made with, with wheat and rye and such to, to, to literally say it, you know, on the label. But mm-hmm. it, this ability to, to mislead and mm-hmm. not provide full information is scary and, uh, and concerning. And, uh, and, and, a, and a tough one. And I think, you know, we'll see it played out uh, in the political sphere, particularly right now, is that uh, it's very hard to find an arbiter of facts. And it's yeah. almost incumbent upon all of us to take information from different, you know, parts of the continuum of, uh, you know, if you're talking politics, to try to, 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 to assemble enough information to figure out the facts for ourselves and that's that's time consuming and difficult and so that that part is really scary for me as a marketer Mm -hmm. because if people can't place faith in in what you're saying then you know it's it's gonna be really tough yeah well and it used to be i guess I, i I don't know if it ever was entirely this way, but it used to be that, you know, our media and the news organizations could be some arbiter of truth, but the, the, the folks that are you know, propagating the, the misinformation, it moves at such a pace and volume now that, that we need a new guard <laughs> yeah, to, no. to help arbitrate. Um, well, and it's given a new role to, uh, you know, podcasters like you because you, you have the format to really thoroughly go through things and, and address subjects versus sort of this cursory, you know, treatment that you get uh, certainly in television. And, 
Mm-hmm. But yeah, the, the 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 news media itself is, is super challenged right now. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, here's hoping they they figure it out for all of us, uh, yeah. or or somebody somebody new comes onto the scene. But in the in the interim, we all just need to deep think a little deeper. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. I'll but, be uh, yeah, exactly. Well, Rodney, it's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Alan. I really enjoyed it. Really enjoyed it. Hi, it's Alan again. Marketing Today was created and produced by me. If you're new to Marketing Today, please feel free to write us a review on iTunes or your favorite listening platform. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends and colleagues about the show. I love to hear from listeners, and you can contact me at marketingtodaypodcast.com. There you'll also find complete show notes with links to anything we talk about on any episode. You can also search our archives. I'm Alan Hart, and this is Marketing Today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.